Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word on Core Edition. Adam Collins with you, Jeff Lemon with me. We've got Jason Gillespie's interview from November 2017 rebooted today. Jeff, it was... I reckon the first time we really thought, let's have a crack at a big interview. I mean, we'd interviewed other people on the podcast before and it's various guises, but we hadn't sort of decided to like take a big personality with us down the full journey. And, you know, of course, we've done it many times on The Final Word since, but this was a special one for us. And I think that um, going back through a bit of it today... Uh, It's one of our favourite interviews, and I'm glad we can reboot it, and I think that it was a bit of a turning point for the show. Well, this one set the model, and it wasn't necessarily deliberate, but we asked Jason if we could talk to him. He was friendly and happy to do it. He was supposed to be playing in a like some sort of charity game or something at the Adelaide Oval, and it was raining a bit, and he wasn't that keen to get out there and help with the covers. So he was happy just to stay in with us. And so we thought we'd go down and talk to him for 15 or 20 minutes, and in the end we talked to him for over an hour because he was happy to do it. And we ended up with such a great conversation and and such a great result out of it that we went, oh, this is what we should be doing is actually talking to people in proper depth about who they are, what they're about, you know, who's the person behind the game. And so we stumbled upon the structure that we use to this day. Yeah, it sort of stays that formula, doesn't it? That life in cricket thing and, you know, not just who they are as sports people, but, I mean, with Jason, we talk about his Indigenous background and sort of coming to terms with that through his youth. I, I think we talk quite a bit about his veganism. We just There's a great anecdote about how he nearly became uh, the England coach in, in 2015 before it sort of fell over, but he goes through that with us in quite a bit of depth. I think in the end, it's actually only 45 minutes, having a quick look at it today. Um, but it, I think it felt like we talked to him for ages, and that's because before, our interviews might have only stretched for 10 or 15 minutes. We did that kind of conventional radio style of get in, you know, get straight to the news point and get out, whereas here we let it ponder a bit. It was a bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we, we just let it flow. Circumloquacious. That'll do. That'll be a word that that's, will fit. That's uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and it fit the bill. So, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that we're going back to the very start. I have no idea whether... Um, we sound nervous or fluent or, or otherwise. I suppose that time will tell when, when we go back and listen to it in full. But um, yes, he also, Jason, uh, did our live show in Adelaide last year. And that was a quite different experience because two years on from that chat, you know, we, we'd worked with Dizzy quite a bit in different ways, uh, different organizations, broadcasts, whatever, um, and spent a lot of time with him in press boxes and sort of engaged a lot on social media. So, and, you know, just sitting around lunch tables at cricket grounds as well, which you do a lot of when, when you're in our caper. And um, that was a lot more, uh, a lot more casual, shall we say, as we uh, um, let him play all of his shots and kind of do more of his sportsman's night routine. 
but this wasn't that. This was the lifting the hood a bit on on who he is as a human being and and kind of giving a bit of a bit of context around the guy we see on Twitter being an activist and someone who who, who takes on a lot of issues and plays a lot of shots and kind of getting to understand why that is the case. I love when I'm talking to you on a podcast anytime these days because I can just hear Winnie like, absolutely belting it out in the background, just having a good old sing. <laughs> this got noted the other day, didn't it? People have heard Winnie uh, coming through the microphone. I, I did just say to her mum before I'm about to record for half an hour, but she's just woken up. She's just having a feed and she's just exercising her she's feeling constitutional good. right to have a good old scream, which is fine with me. It shows that she's got a loud voice. It's and an enjoying it. scream. She, it, it's a, you know, she sounds like she's singing a song for the world um, to, to, the world's just coming into existence for her and she's singing it into existence and I for one welcome it um, because you know eventually I get to switch it off when when I feel like it. Before we get to the Jason interview we're going to do some nerd pledge and we're going to bring in a new segment today which we, we've never done before but we'll do it uh, in this encore edition on account of a couple of things that happened on, on Tuesday when we last spoke. This is corrections. Now I'm sure Jeff in the past we have made factual errors on the final word. It's impossible that we haven't. This is about our what I don't know, 250th episode or whatever it is. It's a, lo- a lot of episodes uh, on along the way. I like to think I've made at least one factual error in every episode. There you it, go. It, it's an equal opportunity uh, system. <laughs> but uh, we, there's a couple of things we should we should return to. One is that the test match between Australia and Afghanistan is being played at Perth Stadium, not the WACA. Now, it's an, a mistake that I made, honestly, because a lot of media organisations reported it was going to be at the WACA. But WACA. that's what I thought was happening. And I was like, I'm sure it's at that stadium. And you're like, nah, it's at the WACA. I know. Oh, it is, and I was like, "All right, well, yeah. you sound very confident, so I'll concede on this." Well, the point. reason I backed the reason I backed it in is, and, and I had a look, and I tried to work out how I could make such an error. But a lot of stories went up saying it was the return of Test cricket to the Wacker, and so I wasn't imagining it. It's just that it's somewhere along the line, someone's got the wrong end of the stick, and it, it's bled into the podcast on Tuesday. So no, it mm. will be played um, at the Casino Stadium over there at Burswood when they take on Afghanistan. <laughs> um, and the other error, Jeff, I'll, I'll get you to explain this one because we we received some correspondence about. 20 or so tweets in a long, detailed and sprawling thread um, yesterday from a journalist from the Times of India um, who wanted to make sure that he was credited with breaking the story about the ICC last week. Yeah, well, Case Srinivas Rao is a journalist for Times of India and they were the ones who had originally hunted down the story that we were discussing about the ICC. Now, we were originally um, beefing up Nagraj and Crick Info for having broken that because that's how it appeared when... When we read it, um, it turns out that they'd been getting that information secondhand from the Times, who'd originally been the ones with the source of the correspondence. So uh, credit where it is due Indeed. to some excellent reporting from Case Srinivas Rao, and hopefully uh, he's been getting the plaudits that he should have for getting that story out there. And if we can retroactively make him a CBUS Super Performer of the Week, we will do that too. You can have that prize as well. So, uh, so thanks for your hard work out there in the email minds. Uh, Jeff, before Nerd Pledge, a couple of uh, updates uh, since we last talked. One, a really positive one, the West Indies Cricket Board have, have agreed to let that tour proceed. So uh, the dates of the first test are 8 to 12 July at Southampton. Then they move up the road to Manchester, well, up the other end of the country, really, uh, to Old Trafford uh, for the 16th and the 24th, respectively, will be the start of the second and the third test match. So as Chris Stocks, our freelance colleague, um, uh, noted on Twitter, um, England owe West Indies a huge debt of gratitude for this. They don't get any money out of touring. They don't... 
all they really do is get to spend a, a decent slab of time away from their loved ones during this pandemic. And of course, they'll have to go through isolation. They arrive in the country on the 8th of June. So they'll be here for a pretty long time, six weeks to play three test matches, which is, you know, at least two or three weeks more than they ordinarily would be for a, a series of this length. So um, credit to the WICB for, for signing up to this and, and making test cricket happen again. Plus the quarantine there, plus the quarantine back. So yeah. I think they end up doing about nine weeks in quarantine all up and play 15 days of cricket, theoretically. You'd want to hope you don't get rained off. No, no, that's right. So they'll basically be stuck in a hotel, um, never leaving, never engaging with the world outside. So basically it'll be like any Australian cricket tour. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, they'll, they'll have to work out. How to, how to survive on Netflix alone. Uh, and, Jeff, there was a story last night from our friend Ali Martin at The Guardian uh, noting that uh, Jeffrey Boycott won't be commentating on, on Test Match Special this year. Uh, it was um, linked to the uh, coronavirus, the fact that Boycott's 79 and it would be dangerous you know, having him out there um, at risk of uh, in- infection, I suppose, um, uh, through the, the test that he may or may not have covered. But it, it feels like a more permanent move than that. Sources in the story um, say that his time with TMS is finished. And, Jeff, on Twitter this afternoon or a couple of hours ago, uh, it, it would seem that he is definitely m- moving on, and that story is correct, uh, because there is a tweet to Boycott saying... White, male, straight, Tory, and knows about cricket. Surprised he's lasted this long at the BBC. That's from an egg. And Boycott has, in classic classy Boycott fashion, quote tweeted it saying, absolutely right. So, um, yes, uh, on the way out the door, um, Jeff, uh, Boycott is is behaving in in the same way that we've seen him behave, really, um, for the duration of the time that he's been on Test Match Special since 2006. Still still salty and um, still pissed off. And, and, well, you know, who can really blame him at 79 years old? A broadcasting career cut short, cut down in its prime. <laughs> He's just been denied so many opportunities over, over the course of his life. Just, just you know, never got the public attention that he should have gotten. And what a, what a devastating time that a whole range of fresh new voices will come through instead. Yeah, how long was it that he sat out of international cricket when he wasn't given the captaincy in the, in the mid-70s? So it, it is sort of true to form. Uh, and, I mean, th- some of the responses to this will surely be, well, no one knows more about cricket than our, than our Sir Jeffrey and, and, and all the rest of it. But it was only last summer in that first test match at Edgbaston when um, he was going on a rant about Peter Siddle and he, and he didn't know that he'd been playing county cricket at Essex for the, the two seasons prior so Ali Mitchell had to kind of politely explain to him that, that Peter Siddle did know a little bit about English conditions having bowled there. He had no clue that Siddle was playing county cricket. So anyway, um, that, that little, that, that not little, that, that chapter, I suppose, of, of broadcasting is over. Uh, Jeff, I think it is time for a segment on the show that we like to call Nerd Pledge. Uh, it is the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us a carefully tailored amount of dollars and cents that they choose and that number somehow links to a cricketing number and we have to rub our temples stare into the middle distance and try to work out what the link is it is nerd pledge uh, the start of the segment we like to look back at a couple from previous weeks that we may or may not have got correct uh, you had some correspondence from nicholas tewson adam i did so 238 uh, was was Nicholas Tewson. He, he informed us that it was someone's bowling figures on debut. I battled through this. I couldn't quite um, get to the finish line through Stats Guru. I had Kirtley Ambrose taking two for 38 in his final test match, which I was going to go to, but I think, Jeff, you've done one hmm. better. 
Well, I mean, that's the opposite of a debut. Um, so you much better. really <laughs> couldn't have been any further wrong than that. Although I, I liked the way that you went bookends, you know. Yeah. I know. Life, death, sunrise, sunset. It wasn't sunset. some random figures. It was, it was the end of the career as opposed to the start. So I was, I was kind of in the same slipstream. Well, two for 38 on debut. Have I got a couple of little treats for you? First cab off the rank and uh, one that I was most pleased to see come up. Zoe Goss. The great Zoe Goss, uh, two for 38 on test debut in an Ashes test at Worcester in 1987, uh, way back when they actually used to play multiple test matches, the first in a three-test series, Adam, for the women's Ashes. Imagine that. And Zoe Goss, who I had the, the pleasure of meeting randomly by accident after the, uh, the T20 World Cup final in March, and you know, I'm very rarely... Uh, starstruck by meeting a cricketer but I was like holy shit you're Zoe Goss and she was like yeah yeah I am and I was like I need to talk to you about everything right now um and and it was a a really beautiful moment to to meet someone who had such an important impact on the women's game um particularly through the the visibility of that dismissal of Brian Lara that she has sort of rolled her eyes at having to talk about for a while, but I think she's come to terms with the fact that it was a, an important moment in the the visibility of the women's game. Yeah, it was 25 years ago uh, last December, so Marty Smith from Cricket.com.au wrote a wonderful um, retrospective feature on, on that incident. Incident, not incident, joyous achievement, really. I mean, <laughs> to make it sound like it's a negative thing, it was a wonderful um, part of that night, the most memorable part of the night, I'd I'd suggest um, when, yeah, she had him caught behind and stumped in, in the same delivery, Steve Rickson behind the stumps doing the business for her. But uh, I remember bowling to Zoe Goss in the nets. I was a net bowler um, to the Australian women. It was actually the Victorian women's team when she was playing for Victoria for, for a while there. Oh, I don't know, it would have been maybe around 99, 2000, 2001, something like that. And she was a, a fine player. And uh, and uh, as you say, I was starstruck then being in the nets with her, um, having had such a sort of massive impact on, on putting women's cricket on the map when it really was so far away from the mainstream. But via Zoe Goss, I mean, that was when, I think it's been, a, it was a long journey between 94 and, and professionalism, but it, it, the seeds, can, some of the seeds can be found there. Indeed. And also two for 38, if you look into one day international cricket, there's a pretty rich history there, Michael Holdings debut figures two for thirty eight. Uh, Jeff Arnold took two for thirty eight in the first One Day International ever played in England, the second match of all time from eleven overs two for thirty eight, not going too badly. Your fave Shaheen Shah Afridi two for thirty eight on debut. Your other fave Shabnam Ishmael two for thirty eight on debut, and uh, Sarah Glenn the England leg spinner two for thirty eight on debut. Nicholas Tucson, if Jeff's missed out there, then he's stiff because he's done the yards. I've got one more for you, though, Adam. I've got got an even better one. This will will make your day. Uh, Another of our our favourites, a South African all-rounder from the turn of the previous century. Back in 1906, Tip Snook, the great Tip Snook (laughs) on test debut, took two for 38 in Johannesburg in an absolute classic that the South Africans won by a wicket. Uh, South Africa knocked over England for 184, so successful that Tip didn't get a bowl. Then South Africa got rolled for 91. Tip top scored with 19 in that innings. He got two for 38 in the third innings. And then they chased 287 at nine wickets down with Dave Norse at number eight making 93 not out to get them home. What a test match in 06 and Tip at the forefront. Brilliant, Jeff. You've done really nicely there. Thank you again to Nicholas Tucson. And I got a message on the DM through Patreon from Joey McGann. Uh, 
385 was Joey McGann's number. world. Joey McGann's world. We we guessed on Monday or Tuesday, sorry, that it was the score that Australia made when Smith made his like breakthrough century, his first hundred in Australia um, in December 2013 against England at the Wacker. But he said to us that he is a Queensland fan from the 2000s, and that was his clue. Hmm. There's only one place that can go, and that is Martin Love. All you need is Martin Love, uh, the the man who played a, a couple of games, made a, an unbeaten 100 against Bangers, had that great little period where he batted with Steve Waugh, so Love and Waugh were batting together, <laughs> and uh, and otherwise barely played test cricket. He's the, one of the unluckiest. You know, it's easy to sort of just point at Stuart Law as the unluckiest Australian player to be dropped, but Martin Love made 100 not out in his final test innings albeit against Bangladesh um, when they were just kind of newcomers in, in those top-end tests mm. that were in the middle of winter. But you look at it and take a step back again. Um, he made two unbeaten scores on Dubu at the MCG, 67 and 7 or something like that in that, in that chase at the end. He, made, he got a start at Sydney before, before getting out in, in that loss, only played one game in the West Indies as the spare batsman, so one out of four, so barely got an opportunity. Makes runs against Bangladesh and, and never to be seen again. In 212 first-class matches, Love made 44 centuries at an average of 50. What a strike rate that is. Um, and his final <laughs> first-class innings was also a century. He made uh, an unbeaten 100 in the Sheffield Shield final of 2008-2009. So there can't be many players that finished off um, their test and first-class careers with unbeaten tons. In fact, he might be the only one. Who knows? If someone knows, if anyone else falls into that category, please let us know. But yes, so when, when you think of unlucky players and you know your Jamie Siddons and your Stuart Laws come up, uh, group Martin Love there too because he was a fine cricketer. Well, let's have a look at the new numbers this week. The first one coming in from Jeremy Brown, who has sent $7.08. And, and as any Australian knows, you stiffen to attention when you see 708 should be on the citizenship test. We know what it is. Shane Warne, 708 test wickets, surely. Yeah, it could be 708 and Shane Warne. Or, or it could, could be. be. It's got to be. Or, or it could be the amount of deliveries that Jonathan Trott bowled in test cricket, <laughs> which... <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I bring it up to simply say that uh, he, he took five wickets in Test cricket. Um, his first two were at Lords. His last wicket at that level mm. was against Australia. He won and only against Australia, which was at the Oval in 2013. So in the Oval, yep. in the and you you remember this over, Jeff. You may not remember the dismissal, but you remember the over. He got brought in when Australia were flying England everywhere. Watson made 176 on the first day, and Stephen Smith was on 90. I want to say 97, uh, and he hit mm-hmm. Trot's second ball straight back over his head for six into the pavilion to bring up his his maiden test century. So Smith does that at the start of the over, and at the end of the over, Brad Haddon chops mm. Trot on and is bold. Uh, so it's a it's it's an over you remember, <laughs> even though you may not remember the dismissal strictly speaking. And um, and yes, he bowled. 708 balls at the top level. So probably not him, but just thought I'd remind you, Jeff, of that innings because <laughs> you were there at the Oval that day. I do remember it. I remember the six. I didn't remember that it was Trot bowling because they had Simon Kerrigan there bowling mm. absolute trash um, spin, so it could have been him just as well. Uh, which wicket is it? Which worn wicket was the Strauss one at the MCG? That was 700. From, that was 700, yeah. 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 Um, that's right. I remember. I remember that for not remembering it because I was there, but I was sending a text message when he took that, and I wasn't watching. Uh, <laughs> I think I had a shame worn mask on. They were giving them out at the pub at the Cricketers Arms uh, before play, and I reckon a couple of mates and I had 
worn masks on as he came into the attack and he picked up that wicket mm. in his third or fourth over pretty early on in the spell. I was in standing room in the southern stand. It was a very exciting moment. You'd want to be very careful wearing that mask walking around Chapel Street or something. You'd run into a lot of people you knew. <laughs> uh, I'll leave it there. Next on our list, a great, great friend of the show and a rap to have this number come up because we were warned about it uh, a while ago. Ilya Andrews uh, said it'd have an interesting one for us. 11... 96, which is also a very generous pledge. So thank you, Ilya, thank you, Ilya. for supporting the show. $11.96. What might 11.1196 mean to you? Adam? Okay. Well, I was mindful that it was something that was a bit esoteric. I'll state that off the top. Mm. So that's why I've had a bit of a frolic here. Um, 11 for 96 were the debut match figures of Charles Marriott. And that ties in nicely, of course, because we were talking about taboo figures with Nicholas Tucson a couple of moments ago. That's what got me thinking of mm-hmm. the theme. Mm-hmm. He was an English leggy, born in Ireland, grew up in Ireland, learned his game in Ireland, and he, he played at the Oval in 1933 against the West Indies and picked up five for 37 in the first innings on debut, including George Headley, if you don't mind, and backed mm. it up with six for 59 in the second dig, and England won by an innings and 17 runs. 11 for 96, incredible first up figures. In itself, that would have been sufficient, I think, for me to have gone with it. But where the story is even more interesting to me is that he never played again. He's one and only test what? match. He picked up 11 for 96. So he's all, he's, you know, his bowling average in test Jesus. cricket is 8.7. He went on the tour so to India. He's the Andy Gantome of bowling. He is. He is the Andy Gantome of bowling. He, he went to India for the 33 34. Uh, tour under Jardine, didn't get a start in the test matches, took a hat-trick in a tour game, wasn't sufficient to get him into the test side at any point during that visit. Um, He'd also been uh, to South Africa in 1924-25, where he'd been a drinks waiter throughout as well. So the leg breaker, all up, he picked up 711 first-class wickets at an average of 20 in a first-class career that spanned two decades. That was at Kent and at Lancashire. So 711 wickets at 20, pretty good numbers. He only mm. made, in 20 years and 159 games, he only made 574 runs at an average of 4.1 wow. with a high score of 21. <laughs> All this cricket over such a long period of time. So at, at two ends of the... I mean, I guess you can sort of frame it up a number of ways, but... Both extremes, really, having had mm. one of the most prolific debuts of all time. I think only five bowlers have had a better debut than 11 for 96 in their first test match. And then, yeah, never to play again uh, and, and to have been also one of the consistently worst batsmen to ever play the game as well. Um, so, Elia, I, I mean, it may not be Charles Marriott, but I'm, I'm glad we can talk about the Irish leg breaker, googly bowler as I gather he bowled one that went the other way as well uh, on the final word because I must admit Jeff I'd never heard of him before nor had I and and I I just sat back that was like watching a, a, a streaming show all of my own as you told me that story I saw it in my mind's eye Ilya Andrews I am not putting anything else up for that we are going 1196 is 11 for 96 of Charles Marriott thank you for your support and, and just to say as well we, we just said that Martin Love and Stuart Law were the two unluckiest sort of Australian batsmen of, of their generation there's a case to be made that that Charles Marriott is the unluckiest bowler ever I'm going to revisit this I'm going to I'm going to Visit, do some research and work out why. There must have been something else going on because, in a way, only playing 159 games in 20 years when the county season then in those days was far longer. They used to play, mm. I think they used to play 
27 games a year or something ridiculous. So there, there must be some reason why he didn't play as much cricket and was never called upon again by his country. Dig into it and find out, was he a spy? Next on our list is Andrew Turner with 168. What does 168 mean, Adam? Well, as you can, you'll probably be able to tell, I got into a bit of a theme. on Clint Mackay and Peter George, who both played one test match, as did Charles Marriott. So two one-testers, uh, both bowled 168 balls in test cricket in their solo test. <laughs> Marriott bowled 247, in case you were wondering. Uh, but no, okay. that, that's where I got to. I thought I'd leave the space open for you to... To, to have a frolic here, Jeff. Well, I was aware that in the last few weeks we talked a lot about uh, Frank Worrell and mm. we talked a lot about Everton Weeks and we had uh, neglected the third of the three Ws. No Clyde Walcott love. Uh, Clyde Walcott was the first batsman in Test cricket to make 168, Very nice. to make the score of 168. And then it became a real West Indies thing. It was a West Indies score for, for quite a few years. Clyde Walcott... Collie Smith, Garfield Sobers and Seymour Nurse each made 168 while nobody from any other country did. Uh, so that was a nice little uh, review, a little uh, pattern to start it off. It was also the score that your mate Jonathan Trott made at the MCG in <laughs> 2010 when uh, England knocked over Australia in a session and then proceeded to bat for about nine days before they had to catch the boat back to England. <laughs> uh, but, but Jonathan Trott, who was, who was definitely one of the most competently boring batsmen to watch for me. I, I was at the ground for that entire game watching every dull, effective shot that he played for when the sun came out, just as England came out to bat, um, as, as he batted Australia into the dirt. And 168 was also the score that Michael Clark made after the famous Lara Bingle split when he flew back to New Zealand, rejoined the Test Tour and made 168 at Wellington. So there are a few 168s for you. And that was the trot one, the trot innings where, um, where he was dismissed by Peter Siddle early in the day and it was the first instance, the first high-profile instance anyway of a, of a batsman being retrospectively recalled. So Siddle no-balled and, and the television replay showed that and it also showed Alistair Cook about three yards, or no, not three yards, about a yard out of his <laughs> crease when the ball was bowled. So um, that, that's, a, that's a dismissal I've watched a few times because it has relevance to our conversation about the great Vinu Mancad and also about retrospective <laughs> no-balls, two of my bugbears. Those are our bids for 168. Andrew Turner, thank you for that. Next on the list, James Scambler, $3.03. 303, well, 303 primarily means the Lee Enfield Bolt Action Magazine fed rifle, which was the Commonwealth Army's weapon of choice for about 60 years from 1895 through the first couple of Boer Wars into the late 1950s. I think they carried it all the way through World War II. You wouldn't really have wanted to be going up against the Germans with a Lee Enfield bolt action, but they were relatively simple and didn't jam. So there's that. There's that option. It could um, be that. The, <laughs> you're showing it could your, be that. Uh, I'm showing your tertiary We've got ruled out. You can't always get a university <laughs> degree woven into a, a, stat, into a uh, nerd pledge segment, but you've done it well there, Jeff. Anything that involves the decline in merchant shipping for the Japanese Navy as requisitioned between the years of 1941 and 1943 as a an attrition uh, result of America's submarine supremacy. If there's any numbers relating to that, I will be all over that shit. Um, 303 for James Scambler. It's, it's kind of got to be Curran Nair 
the Indian batsman who made 303. And the reason I think it has to be him is because there's a, a lovely Statman link. We talked about players whose only 100 in Test cricket was a double century. Karan Nair is, of course, the only player ever whose only 100 in Test cricket was a triple century because he's never had the opportunity to play on and make another Test century. So for that alone, I'm confident, James, in saying that your 303 is related to that particular man. It was nearly a most historic day because, of course, Kuranaya making his triple ton in India against England. It was the same day that Pakistan were chasing 490 at the Gabba and got 450 of those against Australia. So um, it, it, that, that's, I guess, a, a record that we... Yeah, well, they, of course, passed the 418, which was the world record, but they didn't get to the, the finish line entirely. But um, that, that could have been two big ones going on the same day, but wasn't quite the case because Mitchell Stark decided otherwise when he bowled that fearsome bumper at... Was it... Assad Shafiq. Assad Shafiq, and then, and then things fell around after that. But still, it was a great day. What an innings. What a beautiful bit of batting that was across the evening before and through the next day from Assad Shafiq, the little wonder... Who, who may still get Steve Waugh's record of runs from number six if a couple more night watchmen <laughs> get pushed in for Pakistan over the next few years. I am watching that one like a hawk. Last on our list today, uh, thank you to James Scambler, is Lakshmi Govindasamy. Thank you for your support as well. $3.77. What does three seven seven suggest to you, Adam Collins? I quite like that it's the test cap numbers for two opening bowlers who couldn't have been any different, Frank Tyson and Adam Dale. So the, uh, <laughs> one of the quickest bowlers of all time uh, and, and one of the, I'm not going to say slowest, mm. but Adam Dale was not known for his sheer pace. He was doing a very different role with, with the new ball, but that was the, they were the 377th Englishman and Australian, respectively, an exercise in contrast there. Um, if you took the difference between the top speed of one and the top speed of the other and just took the gap and travelled at that speed, you would be speeding almost anywhere <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, you're going at Nathan Lyons' pace or something like that in miles per hour at the very least. And the other one I liked for this was the Australia... So the very famous uh, Asher series of 1920-21, uh, Warwick Armstrong side, of course, whitewash uh, England 5-0. Uh, that started at the SCG in December of 1920 uh, when Armstrong's mm. side won by an innings and 377 runs with the big ship himself uh, making 159 in the second innings coming in at number seven. So mm. there's a nice historical link back to 377 there. Could be the Typhoon, could be chipping, uh, or it could be something else, Jeff. Well, here's what I'm thinking, Adam, and and... As I've said before and as I've protested on the show many times, I do not mess with the order. The numbers come in as they come in and we do them as they come in. We never shift it around to make it convenient as to the subject of the show that day. However, sometimes it just works. And when I look at three and seven and seven, you can look at it one way, you can look at it another. It could be three for 77, or it could be a slightly inverted uh, way of looking at those figures. It could be 37 runs and seven wickets. And you know who took 37 for seven at Headingley in a beautiful display of bowling in 1997? It was Jason Gillespie, oh, who Jeff. will be coming up right after this. <laughs> Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Before we head off to talk to Jason Gillespie, Jeff, well, not 
strictly speaking, head off to talk to him. It did happen uh, more than, well, nearly three years ago, but ignore the, the space and time and the physics and, and all the rest. Um, future Into talent. the DeLorean. Yes, no DeLorean for me today. Uh, future talent. Uh, you've, you've heard us talk a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks about the competition they're running at the moment, the sports cards company. Um, best friends of the show, just about future talent. Uh, and Back to the future talent? Very, very good. I, I'm never going to deny you a pun, Jeff. You can... Any anytime you want to put your hand up and pun, um, be my guest. Uh, Future Talent, uh, as you would know if you've been listening to the final word for a while, are a sports card company. Bespoke sport cards are what they make. Um, they've been operating for ten years. They've made two hundred thousand cards. They're reviewed with five stars from Facebook, five stars from Google, and they're a brilliant company to keep your club engaged um, at the moment during this lockdown or isolation period where clubs have been. Um, doing it tough. A lot of clubs have been doing it tough. And Future Talent have been huge supporters of local clubs for many, many years. And as a consequence of that, uh, they're giving away 300 bucks worth of their loot at the moment by signing up to their competition. Yes, you can sign up to their competition and tell them why you should get a bunch of free cards for your group or your team or, or all just of you, I suppose, if you want $300 worth of cards just of you and you want to make it into a suit, maybe <laughs> a bit like... Um, was it Lizzie? What was her name? The costume designer for Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, who made the dress out of American Express cards. Uh, some wonderful costume work when they won the Oscar for Priscilla. If you want to do that with sports cards, there's a chance. <laughs> there is a chance. I'm telling you that there is a chance. Now, Adam, there's a true story, actually. I was packing up some old cricket magazines today and a couple of Wheat Picks cards fell out. There was a Brett Lee Wheat Picks card and an Adam Gilchrist one from the early 2000s. And I had a look at them and I thought, these are shithouse. <laughs> they, they, felt, they felt cheap. The photos were uninteresting. The stats were no good. If you get a future talent card, it's not like that. It feels nice in the hand. It's got a, it's got a good card weight and that's what they say in the industry. Uh, you, could, you can flick it cut a banana in half if you master the art of flicking the card uh, it, it looks good it it has nice borders backgrounds you can customize all those things you can put all your numbers and stats on the back and then you can give that card to someone who will see themselves on a card and feel like maybe maybe something of them will live on after they're gone that's right the, the photography that your club do or your portraits or whatever else um, you have the chance to kind of decorate it with that um, as you say, they're all custom made. The cards they made, Jeff and I, were, were spot on. I think they really kind of nailed it in, in terms of the colours and the photos they chose to use and the, the blurbs on the back. And uh, that's and they're on our social media accounts at the moment if you, you want to take a look. But um, yeah, good people doing good things and trying to support local sport when uh, when it's tough. And both Heath and Emmanuel, I mean, I've been playing, well, I've started playing footy and cricket with Heath when we were four, year, four or five years old. We, we did Vic Kick together and played footy until we were you know, well into our teenage years, we played cricket together and Heath went on to play a couple of hundred games of senior footy as well. So he knows all about um, the, 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 uh, the, the way a local club works and he's a, a fantastic uh, fella uh, and done great things with future talent. So um, that's why he's trying to support these clubs at the moment and he wants to tell that story through our show, which has been wonderful. So futuretalent.com.au forward slash competition. Hop on there today, put in your details, put in your story and get your chance to get something that actually matters as well. We said before the, the contrast between that and a participation trophy. I mean, if you've got the chance to give your players and your club members something that will endure, something that will live on, something they'll, they'll remember and, and draw them closer to the club. I mean, these customised sports cards are a lot better option than some sort of generic 
uh, participation trophy that's been ordered with hundreds of others. This is a, a very cost-effective way of engaging and keeping people close to your club at this difficult time. Also, if you just want to leave one as a clue at a crime scene, for instance, or uh, <laughs> where there's been a disappearance, uh, maybe maybe the jewels belonging to a, a wealthy, formerly wealthy family have vanished and you want to leave that as a lead, then some sort of where in the world is Carmen San Diego type deal, that's exactly the sort of thing you can do. We've reminded you to do it for a while we're not going to keep reminding you this is the last one so just just do us a favor go to futuretalent.com.au have a look around the site add in the slash and the competition if you want to enter the comp and get yourself some cards get a card into you and the last thing i'll say if you just want to jump on there and buy it you've already been sold by the idea futuretalent.com.au pop in the final word at the price bar and you get yourself 15 percent off I've got Jason Gillespie with us here, decked out in your whites. So I, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to see you uh, playing a game at Adelaide Oval, but, but here you are. What's the story? Yeah, uh, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. We, we're um, playing a chairman's 11 game. The chairman of the SACA, Andrew Sinclair, put an ensemble of some former South Australian players playing a, um, an opposition. I'm not 100% sure who our opposition <laughs> is, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're on the actual test surface that was just used right. uh, in the Adelaide Test Match. So, yeah, it's 30 overs a side. We're uh, going along very well after five overs. Cosgrove and Sinclair, we're, we're on 10 after a bit. In the, <laughs> I think we're in about the sixth over, so we're, we're motoring along. <laughs> we were observing during a Test Match that you could play on this track on about day eight. Uh, it looked that good. Uh, so it must be not a, bit, not, a bad, not a bad chance when you get the ball to cause a bit of grief. Yeah, I don't know how much I'm going to be giving. Um, I haven't bowled for a while, and, uh, and I haven't had a warm-up or anything. I only just arrived, really, so... Am I looking forward to it? I'm not looking forward to the aftermath when, <laughs> when you haven't bowled for a while and the soreness kicks in later tonight and when I'm driving home. It is a bizarre thing to do with your body when you look at the sort of shapes you have to contort yourself into, <laughs> trying to come back into that after a, a layoff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it bloody hurt when I played, <laughs> when I was bowling all the time. So I can assure you, it, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't get easier. Um, that's for sure. 42 years of age now. We, we wanted to uh, have a chat to you about fast bowling mm. off the top, Jason. Yeah. You know these both systems, Australian system and English system, very well, having coached in both for, for a long period of time. The, the main, one of the main themes of the series so far is that Australia have got fast bowlers and, mm. and England don't. There's some you know, sort of theories that do the rounds about that, but keen to get your thoughts on why you think that Australia have three guys who bowl legitimately you know, 92 mile and above after, after what Jason, uh, Josh Hazelwood rather did yep. yesterday versus England that have never really been able to, to get to those peak so far in the in the series yeah i mean adam the short answer is i don't know both systems i mean i, I think in county cricket there's a lot of just with the conditions and and with because there's more counties there's mm. there's a lot lot more medium paces uh and i think that's just the, the the way it is there are some fast bowlers you know mark wood consistently bowls 90 mile an hour plus uh, he's had some injury problems um, Chris Wokes can crank it up he, mm. he, you know I've seen him bowl in the UK in test matches there he, he nudges 90 mile an hour so so there are a few bowlers that, that get up there I, I think as much as anything I, I think from an Australian perspective we're seeing something pretty special aren't we you can argue and, and argue strongly that Australia are, have picked their three fastest bowlers that are going around domestic cricket England uh, obviously Mark Wood He's got pace. Chris Wokes has got some pace. Uh, Liam Plunkett can bowl 90 mile an hour. Sure. But, you know, two of, the, two of those guys aren't playing for various reasons. 
and you can understand. I mean, they've got Jimmy Anderson's taken over 500 test wickets. You've got Stuart Broad well over 300 test wickets. So you can understand that. There was a time when, when Australia fielded sides that were bowling low to mid-80s or low to mid-130s. I think it's just a, a, a bit of a cycle. And uh, at the moment, we're very blessed to be watching three fast bowlers, you know, at just about the peak of their powers. I think the old fast bowler in me, I love these first two test matches <laughs> just to see these guys go about their work. And what I love about it is they complement each other well and, and there's a real point of difference with each of them. You've got the X factor of Pat Cummins. You've got relentless discipline of Joshy Hazelwood. And then you have the left-arm variety of Mitchell Stark who bowls a lot fuller than most seamers around the world. He can swing the new ball, he can reverse the old one. Uh, he's got a devastating Yorker, uh, skiddy bouncer, uh, a real point of difference and um, then backed up by the GOAT, uh, Nathan Lyon. It's it's a pretty special time to be supporting you know Australian cricket and if you're a bit of a bowling tragic like myself, uh, it's very exciting to watch. Do you ever get a bit nervous watching Stark and Cummins going around, given they've both had such fragility in the past, a lot of injuries, and, and you, know, you battle through a lot of injury problems yourself? Do you have that worry that one of them might break down? No, I don't, actually. Um, injuries are going to happen. Um, you know, and I think the medical staff take as much steps, the players themselves take as much steps as possible to, to minimise um, the risks associated with getting injured, um, look, which hasn't necessarily changed. Um, you know, you know, we hear a lot about workload management and and things like this. So, you know, I think there are times where it's it's probably going too far the sports science way. But you could argue and argue very strongly that the sports science has got it absolutely spot on, uh, looking after these guys right now because they've, they've played two tests, they've bowled plenty of overs in each of them, and uh, and. As far as we know, they've pulled up well and they'll be ready to go for Perth. Looking at Pat Cummins, there is a quite neat comparison with you. You missed 50-odd of the first 90 tests that mm. were available to you after the booth due to yep. injury. Yep. Uh, and then you had that period of consistency where you were pretty much in the side for three years without injury at all, yep. leading up to 2005. Do you mm. sort of see Cummins as having reached that critical point now where he has passed the stage when he seems to be vulnerable and can go on and have a sort of a long and prosperous Australian yeah, career. Yeah, I really do. And, and I've said it for a number of years. i said that, you know, once, once Pat just gets conditioned and works out the difference between soreness and injury, I think is, a, is, is absolute key. Um, and you only learn that by actually bowling. You don't learn it any other way. And, you know, I knew I'd, after probably my mid-20s, I just stopped getting my back scanned. I just didn't want to didn't want to know it just light up like a Christmas tree so I'd, I just thought I'm just going to leave that let that one pass to the keeper and I'll just keep playing and I mean it, it sounds very simple but knowing your own body and knowing what you can and can't do um, get get the advice from sports science and physio the coaching staff and whatever but at the end of the day it's your career and you have to take that ownership of your body of your training support staff are there to support you but ultimately you've got to you've got to work it out and Fast bowling is bloody hard work. That, yeah. That's a brutal reality. It's hard work, and you're going to be sore. You just have to have to know that. But all you can do is put the steps in place. So, you know, eat right, the proper training, know when to to rest, know when you need to play, and just un- understand your body. Keep working on those little little minor little things that allow you to bowl well. You know, every, all bowlers have their little little checklists that they go through, and everyone's different. And uh, you know, if you just keep refining that. Like, so for me, for instance, 
my technically sometimes my front leg went across myself you know went towards you know fine leg for the right hander and I, and I twisted a little bit so my goal was always to stay nice and tall and minimize that as much as I can there's a Pat Cummins bowl quite similar to me in, in a bowling action gets through the crease quickly a little bit of twist a little bit of hip rotation and that lateral side bend between front foot contact and ball release so our actions were quite similar so you know these are they're probably similar little keys that Pat Cummins will need to keep an eye on you know he'll he'll pull up sore from time to time just the nature of his action and, and how fast he bowls but I think the fact that he's you know, he, he's been working hard at his at his strength and conditioning over over a number of years because he's been out injured, and just that natural cycle of building yourself up and filling out naturally, combined with the training, it'll hold him in good stead. There's another comparison between you and Pat Cummins. It's the application you showed with the bat. I mean, we've seen him in the last couple of Test matches play crucial roles mm. at number nine. Mitchell Stark's been tweeting at him saying, "Bat number eight if he wants him." Pass him in the order. And I mean, I know in your towards the back end of your career, you became a, a really important cog in the in the in the lower part of the order obviously culminating in that famous double hundred but do you think that for mine that that shows a broader leadership quality in Cummins you led your state briefly albeit towards the back end do you think Cummins has got those kind of leadership qualities that could have him in the conversation to one day um, be considered for a true legitimate leadership role in this Australian side on on paper as well as on the field look I think a a leader you know without having a letter next to his name I you know I think as a general rule you very hard for fast bowlers to be to be a captain for instance um, and, that, and that's for a number of reasons but mainly bowlers do spend time out of the team you know more likely than any than batsmen uh, that's just just the way it is and they've got a lot to think about when they're out in the middle they've got their bowling so yeah I, I just I think he'll certainly have a leadership role but not necessarily with a letter next to his name you mentioned his batting I mean gee was he's he, he's got a very good sound base good sound defence he's actually got some shots I didn't have any shots I had to tuck off the hip and a cover drive that's all I had um, mate, he, he he can play make no bones about that you know lock him in for you know a, a couple of test hundreds I reckon he's I think he can definitely do that and batting eight absolutely no issue he, he can mm. do that you know I think he could even potentially bat seven if they needed to go that genuine five bowling options on a really flat wicket and they need an extra bowling option I know um Andy Bickle did it on a West Indies tour. Mm-hmm. We went with uh, four quicks and Stuart McGill. Uh, this was in the early 2000s. And we were in Barbados and Steve Ward trusted him to bat at seven. Adam Gilchrist just moved up to six. And, and that, that was fine. And he, I think he got... 60 or something so what a luxury having the, oh we'll just put Gilchrist up to 6 that'll, yeah. that'll be fine yeah. <laughs> if, if only every team was so lucky slightly different to pumping T-Pain up to number 6 just, just um, slightly right. different yeah. Yeah. outstanding as he was here on he day, was good he was good not sure if he's uh, entirely ready for the promotion yet <laughs> but um, there, there was there was an Ashes game where I think setting a declaration you you had licence to have a swing and you, you smashed a, a couple over the fence and you know actually got to get going it was for, in Perth I remember did, how was the feeling of liberation of being told to have a go? Oh, it was great fun. I mean, I, you know, when I was younger, I, I did play some shots, and then I, I just, I, I suppose when I got into first-class cricket, I, I had to find a way to survive and and thrive, and you know, make contributions as as a batsman. And I found, you know, my defence was solid, and I was I found myself more often than not in partnership with an, a batter who's been in for a while, whether it be. So the test group, whether it be Gilly or one of the top six batters. So um, so I didn't need... I was only placed a couple of balls and over, so I, I didn't need to 
have a big expansive game I always felt if I could just bat some time and try and tick the scoreboard over maybe drop us get some singles maybe do that um, that was my way of contributing to the team if I could if I could be in a partnership basically if I'm batting with with Gilly and I get to 10-15 runs he's going to be at least doubling my score Mm. so he's probably got 30 so all of a sudden we've put nearly a 50 run partnership on board 40 run partnership 50 run partnership so that's how I, I looked at it so I break it down and right, let's let's get to 10 here as a partnership let's get to 20 let's get to 30 um, that's how I approached it and I, I felt that was the role for me for me to be effective in that batting lineup and make a contribution uh, I think I averaged 50 balls an in, in innings so strike rate was pretty low admittedly <laughs> but while maybe in the modern game I'd be seen as quite boring. I mean, I was pretty boring back then, um, and it'll be extra boring now. <laughs> but I, f- I felt that I was doing an important role for the team. Yeah, it really belied your your personality as a fastballer, the way you went about your batting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sp- speaking of time, you're going to win a bit of time back now. The pitter patter you might be able to hear through the effects mic is the rain, which has seen the players in your game yeah. leave the field, Jason. Yeah, so. I'm I'm not against this rain right now. <laughs> Reduce the amount of overs we have to bowl. No, playing <laughs> the rain card immediately. Yeah, that's right. Playing the rain card. You've got the Hawaiian shirt on, dancing <laughs> on the bar in about half an hour's time. I know what you're like. It's fine. <laughs> Look, uh, pivot slightly to your coaching career, yeah. which is. Yeah, massive part of your life now. You've been involved in, in both systems, Australia and the England mm. system. When the England job came up a couple of years ago, yep. most newspapers had you pegged as just about favourite mm. for the gig. How did that feel, having a speculation you could be coaching England? And how close did you come to making that massive decision to really have a crack and, and coach the national side there? Was it ever a real consideration for you? It, it, it wasn't. Uh, in a funny kind of way, I mean, it, it was nice to be thought of highly enough by the, all the media that... I was a favourite. I never felt like I was a favourite for the role, if that makes sense. I, I'd spoken to Andrew Strauss. He'd come and visited me in Leeds, and we'd had a, had a cup of tea and had a chat. And it, it was just, he made it very clear he was having these conversations with a number of people that, yeah. you know, that he was interested in speaking to. So I, I was left under no illusion about where I, where I stood. It was simpler conversations. And then I, I ended up going down to London and uh, meeting with him and Tom Harrison and, yep. you know, had an extended conversation. And same thing, at no point did I feel that I was locked in for the role or I was going to get the role. I, I knew they were obviously interested in chatting to me. They called me back for a second chat. So I, I knew I, I must have been under consideration. However, I, it was made very clear that I was speaking to a number of candidates. And then, then there was a bit of media speculation that was going on. I had cameras follow me around and uh, <laughs> media were just ringing me all the time while we were preparing for games at Yorkshire. And, and then I, I remember I remember it distinctly. We were at Somerset preparing for a day's play and uh, I got a call from Strauss. He said, look, um, dears, thanks. Uh, thanks for the conversations and all the, the professionalism you've, you've displayed in, in the media and that. But, you know, uh, you know, I've decided we are speaking exclusively with someone now about the role. So I just wanted to, he just said, I just want to thank you for having a chat. And, um, it just sounds like a dating scenario. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're exclusively, uh, we're yeah. exclusive with someone else for the time being. But, but you uh, know, we'd uh, like uh, to think, keep you on the line for the future. Thinking about it now, Jeff, yeah, you're spot on. Um, so that's a, a, a yeah, strange choice of words, I suppose. But but I, I think what, what Andrew was just trying to get across was that basically, look, I've got someone in mind and yep. I'm chatting with him now. And, and it was absolutely fine. And then I... 
I just thought, right, because I, I didn't want any more distraction with Yorkshire while we were preparing for games and during games because all the questions, all players were getting asked that. It was you right. know, the director of cricket. It was just... It, it was it had potential to start becoming a circus. So as soon as Straussy got off the phone, I sort of got our media manager. I said, "Look, let's get together. Let's uh, have a quick chat, and we can just put this to bed now." And it put it to bed. As for the role, ha- had I um, been offered it, it would have been pretty hard to turn down. Admittedly, you know, it's not not every day you get offered an opportunity to coach an international side. So, mm. you know, if I'm just sitting here now, I, I probably would have accepted it had it been offered. However, on reflection, looking back, it was the right call, one, to go with Trevor Bayless. So I, I fully supported that. He ticked all the boxes that the ECB were after. They had a big focus on white ball cricket and, and obviously his success uh, in Australia and in India and in IPL, mm. that you know speaks volumes. So look, a- absolutely no issue. But then in hindsight, I, I thought, well, you know, it hasn't come along. It's not, not the end of the world. And it would have been, you know, I still would have had to think about it. I still would have had to take into consideration the time away from home and the travel and and things like that so and you know how could I have had an impact but in a way kind of um, I'm I'm very comfortable where I'm at you know with our life and and it was it was just a good experience to go through really to as I said it's not often you get spoken to for a high profile job like that and at least he gave you a call instead of just changing the status on Facebook (laughs) well yeah yeah it was nice of him to actually have a conversation now but uh, Strauss he was very professional Um, Tom Harrison was very professional Um, so yeah absolutely no issues with the 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 process that the ECB went through Um, they were great to sort of uh, deal with throughout given you've came back into the Australian system now and now going over to Coach yep. Sussex next year. You've, you've bounced back and forth a little bit. Does that suggest yeah. that you would be open-minded to a job that's outside of those two countries? If an international job came up yeah. a, a bit further afield, a bit uh, one well, of the nations, yeah. is that something you're kind of in the market for now? Well, yeah. I mean, a couple of months ago, I'd, I'd had contact from Sri Lanka Cricket oh, right. about about that role. And, and it didn't go beyond that. I didn't have an interview or anything like that. It was just a discussion about... Look, we're looking at our options. We've got a few people that we want to um, sound out to see if they would be interested in applying. And so I said, yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to have a discussion. And, and then it didn't really progress from there. So it, that was fine. They, they obviously had someone in mind, um, and that's fine. So, look, I, I think you, you, always, you always look at a role and, and, you know, when it comes up. And the first question you always ask yourself is, can I have an impact? And am I going to enjoy it? Is this what the team... You know, whoever you're coaching, is it going to be a good fit and can you can you make a difference? And then, obviously, family considerations come into it. Um, international cricket is, would be a lot more problematic uh, or more difficult for me, only just with a young family and being away from home. Mm. But, you know, people think, oh, well, why are you going to England for six months of the year, seven months of the year? We feel we can make that work with our family. They're coming over a couple of times for stints to, to Brighton, uh, Hove. And we've, we've created a really nice life here in South Australia and the kids are happy and my wife's happy. And so when I first was chatting with Sussex, my initial reaction was, look, I'm not, not interested. And not, be, not because of the role. I thought the role was very good. And I felt, absolutely, I think I could make a difference to that county. And I feel I could help. But it was the family situation. And, and then when the discussion went, well, you know, we'd be open to uh, basically a summer only role we discussed it as a family we feel we can make that work so then all of a sudden I've gone well if we can make it work as a family then right can can I have an impact or do I feel I can add value to the county 
once I started to speak to the county and what their ambitions for the team and the, the club moving forward, the squad, we kind of, you know, the stars were aligning in a way. And that's uh, that's where the, the discussions progressed and got to a point where I accepted it. Is it a bit like adding another family when you, you take over a team, you're the coach, you're sort of responsible, you've got these, these charges, these young guys who you've got to, you know, guide and, and mould and sort of help make them into something. It's kind of like, here, have another 20 kids. <laughs> well, yeah. Sometimes uh, cricketers can act like act like kids. There's no doubt about that. We we, we all have that capacity, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's a, Sussex is a quite a family club, and I'm big on that. I think it's very important. Yes, we we play a game, but it is only a game. You know, my goal for Sussex is to have a really you know strong dressing room and good relationships with everyone involved in the club, not just the players, but the the staff that. The administration, the supporters, the members, every, everything, you know, I want, want everyone to be cohesive and, uh, you know, for me that that's quite important, you know, we, we had a really good environment at Yorkshire in the, in the time I was there and, you know, you learn from your past experiences as a coach, you know, the good things, the bad things and, you know, I've taken bits and pieces from my time in Zimbabwe, you know, and uh, time at Yorkshire, time coaching in, in and around Australian cricket and you pick bits and pieces that you think work and you know add them to a new role that you're in so I'll be using my experience from my other roles that I've had I've had role in IPL as well and Aussie A and and Mm. Australia and strikers so you know all that experience molds you and how you work with people and, and hopefully I can bring some of that experience to Sussex. What would you sort of describe as your philosophy as a coach? Yeah it's kind of evolves I think Jeff your philosophy as a coach but I I think much as anything, you, you want to help players become better, better players, better people, but never lose sight of the fact that it's just a game. And, you know, for me, that's so important. And people, you know, I know people say, oh, but it's professional sport, and, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you know, it's ruthless, all that. I get all that, but it's still just a game. <laughs> you know, yes, I know there's money in the game. Yes, I know it's, it's blokes' careers, and, and this is where it gets tricky and, you know, it is hard because, you know, some of the worst things about the job is players are being released, players are getting dropped, giving that feedback to players. They're the parts of the job you don't really like. Everyone's got parts of their job they don't particularly like, but, but you have to be very respectful. And But as long as you can look yourself in the mirror and say you're doing it for the right reasons and, and stuff, you tend to be okay. Is that sort of more empathetic, considered side you're talking about there, is that consistent with what you were like when you when you were a player? Or has that, has that evolved a fair bit since you've been off the field? Yeah, I think so. I think I've always tried to put myself in other people's shoes as much as I can just to get a feel for what they're thinking, what they're going through. I think that's that's quite important. Empathy is, is, is an important thing when you're a coach or a manager. Or, and, and you certainly need it in, in, at county level. You need to understand, you know, because it's... How do I describe it? It, it can be tough for a professional sportsman, you know. If you're, you think last year of your contract, you know that there's some insecurities there. Being a professional sportsman, you know, you could be one injury away from losing a contract. I, I get all that. I understand that. Yeah, it's interesting talking to Joe Root earlier in the year. He talked about empathy being a big part of his dressing mm. room. The dressing room he wanted to build, the culture he wanted to, to foster over a period of time. Does that sort of? Do you think you've had an influence on him to an extent? the time you've worked with him and just seeing the, the world in a, in a broader sense rather than strictly about the sort of hostilities to, to use that yeah, I, term on the field I, I think Joe's done that himself he's quite uh, he he doesn't just think of himself I saw that from when I first met Joe and you know he was just a good teammate in the dressing room he'd be very inclusive and, and I think that's just his character as much as anything if I've had some 
something to do with that. I mean, that, that's it's great, but but I think it's it's essentially come from Joe, and and he's absolutely spot on. You know, as as leader, he he needs to be able to put himself in you know in his teammates' shoes and and listen to understand. I suppose. You played in a super aggressive Australian team, you know, obviously very skillful era, but it was also marked by being really hard on the field, you know, a lot of quite angry characters at times, and then you always seemed to be a bit different in, in your own way. Did you feel at ease in that environment, or did, were you comfortable with the way things went on, or did you feel like it was a little bit different to how you uh, would go about it? I, I didn't have a problem. I don't have a problem with players going hard in the field. I don't, I don't have a problem with players... Um, saying a few words out there because everyone's different and different doesn't mean bad mm. different isn't negative everyone you know there's so many ways to hit a ball for four there's so many <laughs> ways to bowl a ball there's so many ways to act out there you know some guys are more vocal than others some guys are angrier than others as I said I've always just seen it as a game and a game to enjoy yeah I, I got fired up on the field from time to time as well um but everyone does it their own way. You know, I know there was sometimes there was a bit of criticism in, in, in the era that I played about how the Australian team went. I mean, we played hard, but we played fair. And, and all those guys I, I was fortunate enough to play cricket with, and I, I watched how they prepared, and, you know, I helped them prepare. They helped me prepare. We left no stone unturned, and mm. we just wanted to win. Well, I don't believe that their lines were crossed. Other people will argue. But you got to remember as well when you talk about you know we talk about sledging and mental disintegration, chirping, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't hear a lot of it. As I'd, I'd bowl a ball, then I'd be walking back to my mark. So <laughs> you know the the hammock, the keeper and the slips. Maybe they were saying a few things, but I didn't hear it as I'm walking back to my mark. I, I always felt as a bowler, me being the most intimidating, a bit like Curtly Ambrose, like just have a little stare, and then by the time the batsman sort of looks up, you're halfway back to your mark and. I wanted to give the impression to the batter, oh, geez, he wants a piece of me. He's racing back to his mark. To, you know, I was slow back to my mark as a general rule, but, but that might, that was my attitude yeah. was I'm going to get back to my mark. I'm having a go. I'm coming at you again. And uh, bowl the ball, give him a little stare or a little word and then get back to my mark as quick as I can as I'm coming after you son so that that was kind of my approach <laughs> when you were when you were really on top of a player you know like I don't know Sherman Campbell in that 2000 series yeah. or whatever and, and they've they've really got no clue what's going on did you ever feel a bit sorry for a batsman that you were working over I've never ever felt sorry for a batsman <laughs> never but look you have to work hard for your wickets and you know that's what I say like fast bowling's hard work as we yeah. touched on earlier I mean you know the some of the, the greats of the game, their, their strike rate is 50. That's still 50 balls yeah. you have to bowl to take a wicket. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And then, you know, these guys with 500 wickets and the, the strike rate of 50. Wow, that's a lot of bowling, eh? Like, mm. I mean, I think Dale Stane's got just about the best strike rate in the history of the game. But he still takes him seven overs to get a wicket. You know, that, I mean, that's incredible. Incredible. Jason, we said when we were going to get you on, we want to talk about a couple of the broad, broader issues. Yeah, I mean, of course. Your, your, um, your, your, your dietary choices are well documented, <laughs> very well documented, your plant-based athlete yep, yep, status. Yep. And, and uh, look, I don't think a lot of people are across the reason why you made those decisions, and mm. there's a lot of chat about other players that have followed suit. So, to start to frame the conversation, why did you make the decision to remove meat from your life? Yeah, well, I remember when I first heard that Peter Siddle had gone a vegan. He's, he's been vegan for six, seven years yeah. now, I would have thought. And I, I, I thought, what's that? I didn't give it a second thought. And uh, <laughs> so that sounds a bit 
bit hippie and a bit crazy. And uh, I thought well, the thought of not having meat was not even mate. I was the biggest. I was a meat eater. I was a, for the ages. I could eat steak. I could do everything. Like, Biltong, all that. I, I'm with the best of them. But yeah, I mean, my dad unfortunately passed away just over four years ago. Mum and dad came to visit us in Leeds, and this was 23rd, July 2013, and mm-hmm. dad was helping us move house. So we hired a little van, you know, those little trucks, because we, we weren't moving far. We bought our house, and so we're moving out of our rental accommodation, which was just around the corner. And uh, so we hired this van, and we made a few trips. So it was the last trip, and um, and unfortunately, Dad had uh, had a heart attack, collapsed, and, and subsequently died. And uh, that had a pretty big effect on me. And so I started to just look at, you know, because my dad, to be, you know, bless him, he wasn't the specimen specimen he used to be, uh, so <laughs> to speak. He he was carrying a bit of weight. He, uh, you know, I'd found out after he died, you know, he'd had some issues, you know, he, he financially, he because he'd been out of work for a while, so he kept things pretty close to his chest, which in turn created a lot of stress in his life. So these combinating factors and... So he was he was eating eating badly and and things like that and not putting the best food into his uh, best food or drink into his body. So after that after that I just started to look at things. I, I didn't go vegetarian or vegan or anything like that. It was just an, an awareness of you know <coughs> got to look after myself a little bit better. I've got a young family and you know I basically crapped myself and so started to look at things. And then it was probably a year later, just over a year later. My wife and I were just stumbled upon a documentary called Earthlings, and uh, it was done in mid 2000s. The premise of it is that you know we're all on this planet, you know we're all Earthlings, and it's it's a it's a vegan documentary essentially. And something just clicked; it just made complete sense. And I'm look, I'm not a religious man. I'm not a not a believer in many things, to be honest. I'm actually quite a non-believer. Hmm. Um, this just something in me just triggered and it just made complete sense from that moment on i i stopped eating meat i just said i just looked at my wife i said i i did not know this this is just the light bulb moment and i did not know what goes on with the animal welfare the environmental impact i, I had no idea and the health benefits of whole food plant-based diet as well. So I, I had no idea. So subsequent to that, after I, I literally went overnight. Uh, that was it. And then I started to watch more documentaries and read papers and just do my own research. Yeah. And it just made complete sense to me. And I've been vegan ever since. And um, I've been vocal. I felt I was a little bit stitched up. When I was still coaching at Yorkshire and a journalist was asking me some questions, but it's what I believe. It's each to their own, but look, I'm, I'm, I'm very strong in my beliefs. It, it's part of a slightly broader sea change in cricket. You've got, you know, Peter Siddle as it started with, but Adam Zampa's quite vocal about this stuff, Nick Maddinson. Kane Richardson. Kane Richardson, yeah. And Ryan Carters. Uh, yeah, but more and more, I think when you understand and you, you actually do your research, it's just... It becomes quite a simple decision, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I'll, look, I, I've, I've been through the phase, uh, which I think most people do. You, you want to just, all the knowledge that you that you learn, you pick up, you just want to share it with everyone. They say, such injustice in this world, and we all know there's a lot of injustice in this world, but, you know, I'm at a point now where I'm just, I'm on my journey. Um, 
and I just live my life the way I want to. I, I am turning into a genuine hippie. My wife keeps saying to me, <laughs> you are turning a hippie. I've got the, the happy pants, and the and I shop at, I, I buy all my clothes, buy, buy the majority of my clothes at op shops, and, you know, I keep researching off-the-grid lifestyles, and which I, it, it will happen at some point. Sorry, get the battery packs going. Yeah, I, 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 Jeff, I, I'm I'm a I'm quite passionate about it. I, I actually think that will be, I, I think particularly once the kids grow up, get get a bit older, I I can definitely see myself uh, switching off from the grid and uh, and living that you know self sufficient lifestyle. You know, growing my own food and producing my own power and all that sort of stuff. I, I can definitely see it. I'm, as I told you, I'm turning into a bloody hippie. <laughs> R- running, running the cricket filter through that, that cricket is that Jeff, Jeff mentioned yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whenever people talk about not eating meat, invariably, and when they couple it with sport, they go, well, how could they possibly have the energy to do that? How, without the protein in the meat, how could it, that, that's a common argument you hear. How, how, how do herbivores get their protein? They eat plants. And so all I, all I see, it's very simple, just missing out the middleman. I just go straight to the source and have the plants. <laughs> I don't have to go through an animal. You know, and, and what that animal has to go through mm. to then be on your plate. I mean, let's face it, there's no such thing as humane slaughter, is there? It's, um, it's a strange coupling of words to me. It makes zero sense. But yeah, like, people always talk about that. And, and that's the first question you get. You ask a vegan, yeah. what's the first question you get asked? They go, how do you get your protein? So I always fire back, tell me what protein means. And... No one's been able to actually give me the definition of what protein is. So people just hear, <laughs> oh, you've got to have protein, protein, protein. The research shows that we, we have three, four times the amount of protein that we actually need. It's actually wrong from a scientific point of view. It's wrong. I mean, plants have protein. I mean, there's more, there's more protein in chickpeas than chicken. But do you think it did influence the way that Peter Siddle has been thought about? I mean, it, it maybe, has, maybe yeah. social media is not the greatest filter. It's a bit of a, you know, yeah. a bit of an echo chamber. But no, no, you definitely. jump on there and you talk about Peter Siddle, and people do, you know, because they, people, they, they, it's a slur almost. The, the, yeah, and they think, you know, that people say, oh, but Peter Siddle slowed down, and uh, yeah. you know, he's not as fast as he used to be, and all that. So obviously, it's because he doesn't eat meat. I mean, you ask Pete. He can run faster for longer. He can lift more in the gym. He can squat more. So it's not a strength or conditioning issue. You know, just wonder, like, in defense of Pete, he has had a few injuries over mm. the years. And you, you do, as you as you get older, as a bowler, you, you do slow down. You know, I certainly, when I was over 30, I couldn't bowl have what I used to bowl when I was in my mid-20s. It's just that natural evolution, I suppose. Mm. It seems, you look at cricket culture more broadly, there's a lot of macho bullshit, there's a lot of posturing and a lot Correct. of testosterone and all the rest. Correct. You're kind of a different cat, you're coming at things from a slightly different angle. Do you ever feel like the way you do things isn't isn't right or, or isn't welcome or shouldn't be there? Or I, I, love, I love that you call me a different cat, that's great. <laughs> um, uh, it's... I just say you you be true to yourself, and you know I, I know I know people perceive me as being different. I don't see myself as different. Uh, I do have alternative views to a lot of people. I don't like seeing animals slaughtered for our benefit. I don't like the dairy industry and what they do to to innocent animals. I <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> That's how I, I just oh he's weird because he doesn't want to slaughter animals. You know I, I find that a little bit strange. Yeah, he's a bit strange because he cares about the environment, you know, cares about the oceans. For me, I don't see that as being weird. I see that as 
being a human being. Had your, had your, yeah, well, yeah, had your your views or your epiphany four years ago, but the way you've changed your life, had that happened 15 years earlier and you're a member of the Australian Change Room, would it yeah. have been a welcoming environment for you then or is this something that's only palatable now that uh, I, other players and others um, have, have sort of led the, led the way? I, I would have been fine. I'm a pretty strong personality, so I'd like to think I am. I, I don't think I would have had a problem. Look, I've made a mind down where I live. He's a, he's a local butcher. Not going to not be his mate. Yes, sure. we've got very different views on <laughs> <laughs> what the, the world is. As different as one but, could have. I but, but, I, I, but I think the, the reality is we live in a non-vegan world. So you, you just have to do what you can. And if someone asks me about my views, I'm pretty strong on my views. I'm not afraid to give that view. But I'm not going to say to someone, I don't like you or I, because you have a different view to me. We'll have a discussion and a debate. And I don't have to agree with it necessarily, you know, and they don't have to agree with me, but I feel I'm right, <laughs> and and I can be a bit of a stubborn bloke from time to time, just ask my wife, but it's kind of what makes me tick as well, if that makes sense. I've just noticed that um that, that some of your teammates are running out to do covers, which must be a bit old fat. You wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a very long time since you were asked to run out and do the covers, Jason. But, yeah. well, but you know, and I'm that, so glad I'm having a chat with you guys say, on so this I podcast. Think, so I think, I think that so it means we can keep talking to you and keep you know, taking advantage of your generous time you're giving us today. Oh, it, by the way, we are playing the MCC. I didn't realise. Oh, really? So, yeah, Chairman's 11 versus the MCC. Because I right. thought John Stevenson there just before. So yeah. Did you represent the MCC in one of your iterations over in England? I've, I've, never, I've never played for the MCC. Uh, I, I'm a member, sort of an honorary life member of the mm. MCC, so I'd love to uh, one day go on one of those uh, junkets, or, I mean tours. That's what they are, um, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, no, they're great. And they, they raise a lot of money for, sure. for charities and stuff, which is uh, I think is, is fantastic. In light of the extra time we've got, we were talking, Jeff and I, before we came <coughs> on, whether we were going to talk about your Indigenous heritage, and I think we, we should. What I'm interested in is, is you're kind of given this title as one of only a couple of Indigenous mm. players who's played Test cricket for Australia. And it seems like quite a heavy burden in a way to put on <laughs> someone that, because, because you don't get to share it around. Yeah, yeah. it's a... <sighs> Yeah, it's an interesting one because as a family, like I've known since I was a young kid that our family is of Indigenous, you know, Aboriginal heritage. So it's been nothing new and it's something that we're obviously incredibly proud of. So it was a bit of a, you know, all my mates growing up, they, they all knew, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're of Indigenous heritage. So there was no issue going through school, all this sort of stuff. And it just so happened that there were um, journalists around the year 2000 it put this story on oh Jason Gillespie's uh, Aboriginal and all this oh where's this come from and all this sort of stuff and it was a massive surprise to me that is, uh, and maybe I, I underestimated like I just thought nothing of it was, oh yeah Aboriginal yeah, well, you went on to the captain the Atsic 11 didn't you that, that game well I was, I was meant to but I hurt myself so oh, right. I was sort of a non-playing captain uh, which was great <laughs> Mike really uh, yeah but well <laughs> But I, I'd, I'd injured myself, and it was before a tour, so I, I had to be careful. But, but yeah, it was it, it was a weird old time. And then your question, Jeff, there's no, I've never felt there's any expectations or anything like that. I, you know, I've got Aboriginal heritage of, you know, my, my mum's side. We've got Greek heritage, and you know, we're obviously proud of that as well. You know, and I think there was a little bit of criticism in some quarters that you know I was seen to not really be embracing my culture, which couldn't be further from the truth. My late father, I mean, he worked; he was CEO of ALRM, Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement, for a long time. My brother still works there, 
you know, it's not as if our family have just, you know, swept it under the carpet or anything like that. Gee whiz, you only have to, you know, my, my, my one of my cousins, he, he works in Indigenous services and whatnot, so our family's got a strong connection to Aboriginal heritage and, and the like. So pretty, pretty significant time coming up for, for Indigenous uh, affairs as it relates to Australian cricket with the Tour of England next year mm. um, to mark the 150 years since the initial yep. tour. And Ashley Gardner, Jeff and I have had the great pleasure of watching her play for Australia in recent times and for the Sydney Sixers in, in the Women's Big Bash League. She's a superstar of the game and, and will will have a, a massive profile very soon. Have you had much to do with Ash? I know you presented her a cap when she first played. I haven't had much to do with Ash. Um, presented with a cap, yeah, which was a, a proud moment. Yeah, she, she's going to be a superstar. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. She bowls really nice off spin. She gives them a whack, and she's a jet in the field. Mm. All the attributes of uh, of being a very fine cricketer for Australia for many years to come, and just absolutely delighted for her. Um, she's she's worked her butt off to achieve that. So, you know, full credit to her. Um, I, I think what what I'm really proud of Cricket Australia. Um, they've put a real emphasis on the Indigenous eleven men and women. They're you know, that, that tour that you mentioned that's, that's coming up. I, I can see they're, they're putting more focus into Indigenous cricket and we're seeing a lot more lads pop up into first-class cricket. I'd like to see some more. That'd be fantastic. But also, I think our sport has got to be realistic as well. AFL is what Aboriginal children love the most. But we've got to, as a sport, try and get them to think, well, there are alternatives to footy. Aboriginal children, I mean, they're just unbelievably gifted kids in you know whatever sport they pick up you know we, we just probably selfishly as a sport we want to we want to get the best young kids coming and playing our sport and showing them that it's a it's a great sport to play but our sport's very different to footy so you know cricket australia have to be understanding of that and and, and i think they are but you know they're, they're really making some conscious efforts to to give aboriginal cricket a real profile and i'm i'm, I'm very proud of cricket australia for going down that path Jason, you've been incredibly generous again with your time today. One of no, the no most worries. considerate and interesting and engaging uh, members of the cricket community. We're, we're so thrilled to have had you on the final word. Thanks for your time. Absolute pleasure, lads. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And thanks again to Jason Gillespie, not only for being uh, available to us for that interview in 2017 and a live show, but, but for being so bloody supportive of what we've done over the last few years. He's a, he's a great man uh, and a great friend of the show. And it's great that we were able to yeah give that a bit of spit and polish and, and put it back out to you again in his Encore edition. Yeah, well, I was thinking just how few people who listen to the show might have heard that back in the day because it goes back quite a while but with the dust off it polishes up very nicely indeed and as you say there there are people in this area of uh, of work and of the world who are just genuinely nice decent proper fantastic human beings and Jason Gillespie is one of them Thank you to Jay Mueller and Bad Producer Productions and Dave Collins and Astrid Edwards for looking after us. Um, all of their shows are at badproducerproductions.com. Uh, you'll have another episode of Calling the Shots, my other show on the Final Word stream, coming out next week, which is going to be really interesting, not least because Jeff's on it uh, on Monday, the next May. Finally, you and I do a podcast together. <laughs> the people have been waiting for this collab. They're like, when are these two guys going to team up? When are they going to drop something together We 
you keep hearing their separate work, but imagine the chemistry if they got in the same booth on the same track. Well, that's going to happen, people. It's finally going to gonna happen. You'll get to hear Jeff tell the story of, uh, of Raw Radio and White Line Wireless, and he'll go back over the, the mighty Channel 9 piece and, and so on. So that'll be fun. And, um, Jeff, uh, we also uh, will be back with our weekly show uh, probably Tuesday next week, and that will be our long conversation with Mark Nicholas. So as part of Calling the Shots, um, Daniel Norcross and I spent a long time with Mark and we're in the process of scaling that back at the moment into a digestible format for the final word. But uh, it's a great chat uh, about a love of commentary and I'm, I'm pretty sure if you enjoy the final word and enjoy our conversations, then, then this with Mark will be um, one that you uh, can really get your teeth into because, you know, we all love cricket commentary, don't we? It's something that binds cricket people together and, and Mark is a, a true, not only great at the craft, but a true lover of it as well. And then the week after that, we're going to have our William McGuinness interview, which I mentioned I've teased people with a, a bit too preemptively, but that will be coming up on the following Monday. So in a week or so after you're hearing this. So uh, it's there's, there's a lot coming up in the next few weeks. We're really excited about it and can't wait for you to get it in your ears and let us know what you think. Can't stop, won't stop. If you've enjoyed the show today and the chat with Jason Gillespie and you can jump on iTunes and give us a rating and a review, that will be appreciated as well. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. This has indeed been the final word Encore Edition. Enjoy your weekend and we'll talk again soon. Ciao. Sorry if I ran into empty broke this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS.